On today's episode of the NASPA Leadership Podcast, we talk to Dr. Cameron Betty and Dr. Jesse Ford about black male leadership, recovering from natural disasters, and what it means to be too shy, too nervous, or too arrogant in leadership. Let's start the show. Everyone and welcome back to the NASPA Leadership Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Brittany DeVise, and I'm joined today by my lovely and talented co-host, V Chanu. How you doing, V? I am doing well. It is 56 degrees and sunny here in Urbana, Illinois. Over the weekend, there was I don't think I saw an enti- a cloud in the entire sky all weekend. So it was a perfect weekend for me to be able to be home and catch up from all of the traveling I've been doing in the month of September. Uh, how are you, Brittany? Um, Well, since we talked last, I passed my prospectus defense. So that was really lovely. And then we unexpectedly got a hurricane in Florida, which we'll talk about more later. Um, But then we someone had a week off, off asterisks, um, off of classes, at least. So we are just on the mend. And today is the first Monday that we're back in action. So yeah, we're back, back at it. But we are so excited for today's episode because we're joined by two very special guests. First, we have with us Dr. Cameron Beatty, who is an assistant professor and the program coordinator for the higher education program in the Education, Leadership, and Policy Studies Department in the College of Education at Florida State University. He teaches courses in the Undergraduate Leadership Certificate and conducts research with the Leadership Learning Research Center. His research includes exploring the intersections of gender and race in leadership education, leadership development of students of color on historically white college campuses, and global leadership education for undergraduate students. Welcome, Dr. Beatty. So excited to be with you too. Glad the podcast is back. That's right. Thank you. And we are also joined on today's episode by Dr. Jesse Ford. Dr. Ford is an assistant professor of higher education in the teacher education and higher education department at the University of North Carolina, Greensboro. As a former student affairs administrator who I used to work with, uh, he uses a theory uh-huh. to... That's right. He uses a theory to practice approach to student learning. Dr. Ford's research uses culturally responsive frameworks to explore the social and political influences of race and gender. More specifically, he employs qualitative methodologies to tackle inequality in education, particularly within the socialization experiences of underrepresented students, faculty, and administrators across the P20 pipeline. Thank you for joining us today, Jesse. It's so good to be here. So, so happy to be in space and in community with you both. Well, lovely. Well, we invite you both here today to talk a little bit about your scholarship on and experiences with leadership learning for Black men and among Black men. But before we get into all of your good work on that topic, is there anything else you all want the audience to know that maybe we didn't mention in your bios? I don't think it's a secret, but I'm going to share anyway, because, you know, why not be vulnerable? <laughs> but I am I am a member of the Beehive. I have an avid love for, for Beyonce. <laughs> Uh, and all things Beyonce. I don't really do Ivy Park, but all things musically and creatively, Beyonce is, is a love in my heart. I think for me, I'm a foodie. Um, so I enjoy trying new foods, new restaurants, and new spaces and places. So after this call, if you've heard this and there's a particular restaurant in your particular city that you want me to try and visit, please let me know. Brownie points if it's in the state of North Carolina, but always happy to try new food in spaces and places. Thank you both for sharing that, that, that those parts of yourself with us. 
So to get us uh, started in our conversation about today's topic, could you each share with us uh, your thoughts on the value of, and perhaps touch on the need for, tailoring leadership learning experiences specifically to meet the needs of Black men? So when I, when I think about this question, I think about the lived experiences of Black men over time. I think there's a conversation um, historically about the experiences of Black men as they've navigated not only our greater American society, if we're talking about the U.S. space, but our global society as well, mm-hmm. and how that Blackness has traveled through time and what that has meant in the terms of education. We're talking about a population that has oftentimes been mistreated by the mental health system, mm-hmm. um, miscriminated by the criminal justice system, mm-hmm. um, and a variety of other factors that just impact who they are as people. And so when you mm-hmm. think about Black men, leadership, leadership education, um, and leadership experiences, these are things that they're bringing into spaces. Mm-hmm. Maybe not things that have directly impacted them, but I think about the things that were passed down from between family members, between friends, and the experiences that have essentially carried or have been carried by this population throughout history. Mm-hmm. And so I almost think you have to have these conversations, whether it's just an acknowledgement of, but what that means in the greater context of just being a Black person in America. The, the other aspect of that, specifically when thinking about higher education, is, is thinking about what is what are the goals of leadership learning for, for the context of higher education. And we know that leadership learning speaks to retention, it speaks to engagement, and it speaks to student success. And mm-hmm. if we think about the literature on Black men that is oftentimes, as Dr. Harper pointed out, rooted in this deficit framework, Mm -hmm. then oftentimes we have a conversation about providing leadership learning opportunities for Black men. And it's like, oh, Black men, we don't have Black men in our programs, or Black men don't show up, or Black men don't take these particular courses, instead of having a conversation about the reasons why or the systems that have been set up that have not engaged Black men in meaningful ways that speak to how they can engage in leadership learning. And for me, that's where the shift in the conversation oftentimes needs to start. What's our issue as leadership Mm -hmm. educators? What do we need to get beyond within the context of higher education and beyond the context of our environments on our campus to really think critically about meaningful and intentional ways to engage men, Black men, Mm -hmm. and leadership learning opportunities? Thank you both for that, right? And as I continue to think about that, can you tell us more, a little more about maybe the challenges of establishing leadership learning initiatives that you've experienced or maybe you know others that have experienced that you're in community with, um, specifically establishing leadership learning initiatives for Black men? So uh, oftentimes they're systemic, right? So they are challenges that come up when we try to cookie cutter initiatives. So it worked for this particular population. So it's must work Mm -hmm. for this population. That's one particular challenge that we often see. The other one is just being having cultural, you you all know this, having culturally relevant curriculum, whether that be (laughs) co-curricular curriculum or or rooted in the classroom, what is relevant for these particular men that hold these intersecting identities um, and how do we engage them uh, in leadership from a, from a culturally relevant way. And the last challenge I think is investing in the resources that it needs, whether that be financial, whether that be staffing, whether that be thinking about engagement opportunities, how do we invest in these particular initiatives and telling, instead of telling someone to go and create this initiative because we have a retention issue, but how are we supporting these particular initiatives in, in meaningful ways that that put resources into into these initiatives. 
I think as as I was listening to Cameron's comments, I need to I want to elevate a point that he made specifically around everything isn't cookie cutter. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes we have conversations without black men in spaces and mm-hmm. we don't know what they need because no one is asked. And so oftentimes I think specifically within the context of this particular question, as we are trying to create initiatives and create programming and think about how to do this differently, mm-hmm. we need the people that need the, the research or programs, the pieces to help them be developed in the space. And so if we're not having conversations with these students, then how do we expect to establish, build, create, formulate um, new initiatives, programs, and services? And so I really want to elevate that point in particular, because without them in space, who are we creating this for? And what does this mean in the greater context of creating programs, initiatives, or any other services for Black men? And, and that's the one that when people come, when we present on a conference and people come up to us, it's like, where do I get started? Right. Mm-hmm. And it's because they have been charged with creating some initiatives. And to, to Jesse's point, I always ask them, well, have you talked to the black men on your campus about mm-hmm. what they what they would like to see or how they would like to engage? And like, and it's always, oh, like or um, it's an <laughs> afterthought. Um, so thank you for making and stressing that point, Jesse. Dr. Bay, you said something too that I think is worth elevating that a lot of times in our identity-based curriculum, our socially just leadership curriculum, it's a reactive response and not a proactive response, right? Oh, we have a retention issue or, oh, we have these, this student population is not coming to our program. So what can we do? And really try to shift that mindset to the proactive approach of asking our students, what, what do you need? What do you want to see? What can we be creating that is more socially just and culture relevant to especially specific populations that have been underserved historically by leadership learning? And, we, and and when we do ask the question, we're asking the question to, to students that are already engaged. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, okay, that's still not the population that we might be speaking about or trying to, to really think critically about what does leadership learning opportunities look like for, for Black college men. I think, I think the other piece of this, if, if I may jump in just briefly, yeah. is we think leadership experiences look the same for every population. Mm-hmm. Just because this particular student is engaged in student government or engage within a fraternity doesn't mean that my leadership experiences need to be the same. How I define and make meaning with leadership may be vastly different and therefore I may mean different things. And so agreeing and echoing what Cameron just said, but also making sure that we we don't think that everything has to be the same just because I want a black man to be the president of student government, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Jesse, it's, it's interesting to hear you say that because I think about times when I've tried to teach leadership from an identity point of view. And I have caught myself teaching the way I myself was taught, which there's no guarantee, right? That us replicating the way that we were taught for other people is going to work for them. And it it becomes particularly frustrating for me because the way I learned didn't fit me most of the time anyway, right? Like a big part of why mm-hmm. I became a leadership educator was because I didn't have leadership educators in my life who looked like me, who sounded like me, that came from neighborhoods like mine, that used cultural language, like the language I use in my culture. And so when I catch myself in those moments replicating what I know, what's familiar, what it was taught to me, I I ask myself, why am I doing this? It didn't even work for me. Why am I making somebody else go through this as opposed to doing that work of not just asking them? So if, you know, if we had to do this experience over again, what would you do differently? Or how could we approach this in a way that would be personally meaningful to you, but to also 
try to be proactive in a way that doesn't put that work on my students, right? Mm -hmm. Whether that's the fat students I've had or the ones that I intend on having in the future or literally the ones I'm going to go teach uh, in about a half an hour. But to try to think through a world knowing that there are race differences, gender differences, sexual orientation differences, ability status differences between me and them. But one of my frustrations with my own teachers was that they didn't even ask. Right. And so how do we create systems and policies and environments where we might not even have to ask people feel safe enough to tell us without us having to put that extra labor on them? Uh, so one more question before we take a quick break. Uh, while our audience members and Brittany and Derek and I are <laughs> impatiently waiting for your next book to be released, can you talk a little bit about some of the sources that you maybe uh, go to to help either build or reinforce your foundation of knowledge, skills, and abilities around crafting the kinds of leadership learning opportunities you both uh, have been advocating for? So I feel like I sit in a very privileged position, number one, in the context of working with doctoral students and master students that are interested in working with, with Black men or researching Black men and leadership learning. So sometimes reading their work or reading their prospectus proposals or dissertation uh, proposals, I'm like, okay, well, what are they citing? What's what's the latest? Mm -hmm. So that oftentimes helps me keep, be hip to the game as far as what's, <laughs> what's the latest, what's the latest research and what is it saying? The other aspect of it is actually teaching a Black male leadership class. You know, once a year, I get to teach that class uh, every fall. And I always am going back to that syllabus and thinking more critically about, well, what is the research saying about how people are engaging Black men, rather curricular or co-curricular, and really thinking about creative, how, how can assignments be creative? How can I think critically about, as you all name, like, I'm learning how I learned mm -hmm. leadership learning and the mm -hmm. ways that that would be impactful, and asking them to, to V's point, you know, what did you expect from this? What do you expect from this class this semester? And how do those expectations align with the class that has been designed? And then how can we in some way be in some so now some of the expectations are can be a little unrealistic. <laughs> um, but um, where can I find some alignment or realignment with with what they are expecting um, from from the class and actually hearing from them? And one of the cool, one of the cool assignments that I love is I do this and Darius Robinson helped a doctoral student, Darius Robinson helped me think about this last year. We do this book club assignment where they're reading a book by a black man and his journey um, and his, his life narrative. They're, it's probably, a, they had to be out within the, the book had to be out in the last few years. Uh, so that, so it's a recent book. And then they're connecting what we talk about in class around leadership learning. Mm -hmm. And I think, all of us can do that, right? Of, of learning mm -hmm. about other people's mm -hmm. stories and how people are navigating life and taking from that the opportunities to understand leadership learning in different ways. I think all of us can do that in our sphere of, of influence and, and what that looks like. So the next book you pick up, thinking critically about when is the last time I read a book by a Black man that had a Black men's narrative around navigating their lived experience in the United States? And what did that, what can that teach me about, about leadership? I really love Cameron's responses here. And I think it's something that as a, a relatively young professor, I am learning and seeing more and more in my practice. It's often students that come to me with these questions that articular questions that become new research questions that become new ways of thinking mm -hmm. that lead some of this, and particularly around Dr. Ford, we're reading this book called Changing the Narrative, and it's great, <laughs> but 
did we think about this, right? Mm-hmm. Or mm-hmm. has this been something that has been thought about before? And I have that moment of like, I don't know. Let 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 let's look and see. And so it is not uncommon for us to stop class and do a Google search and just see what's there. I think that the wave of the future, our newer scholars, our scholars that are are going to be pushing the envelope in the next 10 years are where the conversation is going, but I also look at what they're citing and reading now. And so I think I think it's twofold. I think what's new, what are our students bringing to the table, but at the same time, how are we engaging with what currently exists? I also think there's something to be said about some of the foundational texts, right? So um, we're, we're familiar with Sean Harper's work, Derek Brooms's work, Cameron Beatty's work, you know, around some of these initiatives and topics as we are growing a knowledge base. I think crafting these skills is seeing what's there, seeing where we can build and seeing where we can move the conversation forward. That com- that foundational building piece, I think, is something we're still developing in higher ed. I think we are starting the conversation. The conversation is happening, but it's growing. I also think about it in the sense of kind of like the seasons. Um, I think this is how I articulate it in class. Like there is a fall, spring, summer, and winter, right? And the summer and spring, that's the black boy joy conversation that is currently happening in our field. And then the winter and the fall leading up are the racial microaggressions and that tension, understanding that that literature is there, but how we see the entire picture of the four seasons is how we are starting to build, create, and build on the foundation of knowledge that we have for black men. Come on, Four Seasons. That's that's a beautiful analogy. Thank you for sharing that with us. Let's go ahead and trademark that. Let's, go- <laughs> <laughs> Let's take a short break and we'll be right back with more from Dr. Cameron Beatty and Dr. Jesse Ford. And now it's time for a segment we call Rip from the Headlines, where we ask our guests to react to something that's happened in the news fairly recently. Are you ready? Yeah, let's do this. All right. So here we go. At the time of this recording, it's almost a full week from Hurricane Ian's landfall off the west coast of Florida. Many communities in Puerto Rico, the Dominican Republic, and elsewhere are still recovering from the storm's aftermath. As leadership educators, some of us strive to teach towards socially just leadership, but leadership under crisis conditions often requires quick and pragmatically oriented decision making. What role, if any, do you think a social justice orientation plays in crisis management or leadership in emergency circumstances? You know, this is a a heavy, heavy topic for me on multiple fronts. Um, Seeing the devastation in the state of Florida, the Caribbean, and then thinking about friends that I had in the state of Florida that were impacted, and then watching it come back and hit Charleston, where a lot of my family is currently living, 
was definitely something that weighed on my mind as you were as you were asking the question. The I, I think for me, we as socially just oriented leaders around crisis management, we have to think about connecting groups of people and. I know that's something that folks often talk about within the context of leadership. Uh, leaders must build and foster relationships, but we actually need to do the groundwork of doing that. Mm-hmm. And I think oftentimes it starts with a conversation, but most of us are too shy, too nervous, or too arrogant to have. I think it often positions us to to want to think about how we engage with folks. How do we get folks to essentially ask for help? Or how do we offer help without them being able to ask? I think in situations like this, where crises are so big and so massive, and the ripple effect of throwing that rock into the pond extends far greater than just a, a few ripples, right? Like we're talking about the trauma, the pain, the hurt, the loss of not only personal items, but of human lives and people. Until we at our basic needs are able to jump in and say, hey, I got this for you, or let me help you with this, then we're doing a disservice as educational leaders that are trying to lead in the midst of a major crisis and put that over any major issue politically mm-hmm. or socially or globally, whether it's COVID-19, whether it's the things that we have going on in Russia, whether it's the racial in- upbrest- racial injustices in this country, we, we have to think about all of this differently. I was thinking as you were answering that too, in leadership, they do that activity about the earthquake, right? And it's to show people how like in management situations of crisis, you have to go like, what's the most dangerous, the least dangerous? How do we respond with the least amount of damage or impact? But I think oftentimes when we think of natural disasters, especially all of us having lived in Florida through hurricane seasons, right? It's often like, how can we get people evacuated, you know, board your houses up and things too. And that crisis management is so needed, but I think often then we forget about the follow-up of the humanity leadership, right? That you were talking about, like, how do we actually care for people? How do we do the aftermath of the trauma? How do we make sure to like pour into people um, and respond? And especially as educators, all of us teaching in curricular spaces too, like how do we make sure to follow up with students afterwards? Um, Even if our areas weren't directly impacted, we know people have loved ones, family homes, other things too, that are in that. And they're probably carrying some of that as they come back to our spaces to try to engage in leadership learning too. Yeah. And to your point, Brittany, how do we do that pouring into people and relationships and communities before the crisis hits so that when we are trying to repair and recover, that we have a much stronger foundation than we would have if we didn't do the groundwork first, Mm -hmm. right? Like perhaps social justice can, in many respects, be a preventative medicine for Mm -hmm. the thing that we know is coming or the thing, quite honestly, that we don't know is coming, but have a strong suspicion is going to hold us back or hold somebody else back or cause Mm -hmm. distress or harm before, (laughs) Mm -hmm. before the event occurs. Absolutely. That piece around medicine resonates to me because I think about trauma, and I think about medical services in crisis. I think, Brittany, you mentioned it, but I I think there's something to be said about the triage of making sure someone is good and then moving Mm -hmm. on to the next. I think we do a disservice when we don't circle back to the next. We are in crisis mode so frequently, whether that is on a college campus, whether that is politically, whether that is in our country, but we are often in spaces and places where we make sure they're good in the moment and walk away mm-hmm. and we don't re-engage. We don't have the conversation. And so I made sure you were good then and you're good now, but what does that mean long-term? Um, mm-hmm. That trauma, the emotional, psychological, physiological trauma that folks carry is heavy. Mm-hmm. 
since 2020, I feel like I've cited no theory more than Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? But we do, like in the crisis leadership, right? We're doing the very bottom parts first usually, like, right? Like you have safe shelter, you have water, you have food, you have all the things you need. But then like you were saying, Jesse, sometimes we don't respond upward and keep going into like, okay, are you psychologically safe? Like, are you feeling supported, right? And like V said, the preventative piece, right? Like if you're an instructor who's not accepted excuses or people need mental health days or things before in the first five weeks of the semester, students probably are not going to tell you like, hey, I'm pretty traumatized about the things that are happening in my community. Like, can I have a day? Because they've already, you've already given the precedent of what caring for oneself looks like, even if it's not super visible or direct impact to. So on that same note, the response to Hurricane Ian has involved um, a lot of elected officials and you know folks that are emergency responders who previously opposed maybe other forms of federal aid or support at the national level under similar circumstances, but now are asking for the same resources. Um, so what do you make of leaders who take a stance on one side and then maybe have to change dependent on the context as well? Or is there ever a time where we think leaders, leaders can change their positions without um, seeming to go against what they had re- originally said? So I think it's twofold. I think you can only operate from what you know in the spaces of knowledge or the sphere of knowledge that you have. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's okay to shift, to rethink, to recenter, to reimagine, to reformulate, to repurpose yourself within a particular issue, position, or space once you have more knowledge and context. I think we often don't do the homework in some cases when we're asked. And no expert wants to be wrong. And I I struggle with that because I think folks that consider themselves to be experts don't want to be wrong. Most people are a failure, failure, yes, but they're also afraid of being wrong. And so having conversations about what you currently know is one thing, but re-educating yourself or educating yourself on a topic and then not rethinking about what that means is another. And so mm-hmm. I apply those that may have taken a stance with what they knew at that time and then reevaluate, rethink, retool, reimagine and have a completely different stance later. That's education. Mm-hmm. That is at the basic level of what we should be doing as educators, as leadership educators, finding problems, responding where and if we can, and then moving and shaping the next pieces when we have more knowledge and more context. Yeah. I think that context dependent is so important, right? And I think about a lot of time we talk about socially just leadership education. It's this like premise of if you know better, you do better, right? So I am all for people being able to take in all the knowledge that they have in front of them and being able to make an informed decision. But with the asterisks that now that you know better, depending on the context you lived through and things too, that you can respond appropriately. It's the example I give in context of hurricanes, right? I grew up in Ohio, so there's no hurricanes in Ohio. We don't, <laughs> we don't do these things. So I moved down here and everyone's like, oh, they don't really know how to support me, right? Especially when Michael had hit directly and I was still in town, mm-hmm. um, didn't know how to support me. But after Michael, I was able to show people in my life, the context, what happens when a hurricane hits, how people are responding, what it's like to live without power or resources for days. Now people in my life do a much better job of supporting me, right? And being able to support me and be helpful in that way from a distance. Um, but again, it's the knowing better to do better and then continuing to do better with what you've learned thus far, right? And knowing the context that's so important. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's Echo, also interesting. Retweet. I think it's also interesting. We've we've largely been talking about the things that leaders know or the things that we might know in a leadership capacity as factual information, right? So data mm-hmm. information that exists out in the world. 
I think that there's a type of self-knowledge too that can play a role in this process, right? So for example, somebody mm-hmm. might come to college or a program or a workshop or a class and mm-hmm. have a set of values that they orient around, largely because those values have never been challenged. Uh, we don't necessarily have a natural inclination toward interrogating them deeply. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, they're confronted with a situation that's unfamiliar or a person that represents identities they've never interacted with before. And it causes them to question those values and ask themselves, well, why do I believe the world works this way? Or why do Mm -hmm. I hold these things as true or as self-evident? And maybe they aren't. And perhaps, Dr. Ford, what you're talking about here is not just making new or different decisions in the light of factual information, but also living our lives differently based on how we reorient around challenges challenging experiences that force us to confront the values orientation that we have, right? Good. I'm, I'm, I'm going to say something provocative and then I'll look for you to challenge me if, if, I'm, if I'm out of pocket here, but maybe a, a hallmark of good leadership is changing our minds when our values orientation changes and then explaining why. Right. Mm -hmm. In situation X, I believed Y. However, now that I have this new value set or a different orientation around values I held from before, I think differently. And here's how this experience has informed that. I'm curious, you know, for your for your Mm -hmm. reaction, your feedback to that, to that way of thinking. Well, first, I love, love the conversation flow. I think second, what I would say, and this is something I often say in class. So this is this is Mm Jesse 101. I am an expert of nothing, but I am here to learn everything. And the reason why I approach learning, facilitation, teaching um, from that standpoint is because I never want to be the strongest voice in the room, because I think while I know a little bit more, I may have a little bit more context in terms of what I'm reading. It doesn't mean my way is right. Mm -hmm. And so I try to model that behavior in my day to day. And I also look to no one to be an expert either. I have no problem challenging anyone because at the end of the day, I feel that you can challenge me on everything. Um, the values that I hold are near and dear to me. I own the things that I, I hold. I own my stuff, um, but it's just that it's my stuff. And whether I was taught this at age four and socialized to believe it until my current age, I think there's room and space to grow. And I think when we forget or we don't acknowledge that quote unquote expert mentality that some of us walk around by on certain topics, we lose sight of what it truly means to be a leadership educator. Because if you're doing the process properly, you are continuously learning and continuously growing to think about and do the work better. And all we're saying, right, is having a growth mindset in all of these. I keep thinking as, as Dr. Forrest talking and V, you're talking too, mm-hmm. it's that growth mindset approach. I mean, we have students come into our leadership classes and they're like, I was a line leader, so I'm a leader. Mm-hmm. Like, great. And let's continue the journey, right? Mm -hmm. Like, let's keep going in the growth space of that is a leader. And what else can be a leader? How else have you been a leader? Or Mm -hmm. what do you want to be as a leader as you continue to grow? Um, And thinking about that same way in this context here, right? When you can know better, you can do better. Absolutely. All right. One last question before letting you off the hot seat. Some argue that in order to be an effective leader, one has to endure the same hardships as those they intend to lead. Others disagree and assert that we can express impactful leadership despite not sharing the trials of our members or our followers. Uh, Do you think leaders must share in their members' experiences to be effective, or can they lead meaningfully without that shared history? You know, there's beauty in collaboration. There is beauty in idea generation. There is beauty in strength building. There is beauty in the process of learning. And learning doesn't happen in isolation. 
Mm-hmm. I think there's something to be said about this word allyship and what allyship means. I also think there's something to be said about me and my personal experiences. Do I think people that don't have the same backgrounds or same ideologies or ways of thinking like me or people that exist in spaces that aren't me or don't look like me or have the same identities cannot help me? No, absolutely not. I would not be where I am if every Black man I've met in my life has been supportive of who I am and who I want to be. Um, The reality is the world just doesn't work that way. Mm -hmm. I think there is something to be said, though, about those who hold the same identities that I do and are helpful. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean that is the only way. I don't think everyone that looks like me needs to be able to tap into my identities and lived experiences in order for them to be helpful in my process or in my journey. There is something that is actually liberating about creating spaces with different voices, with different people, with different thoughts and different ide- ideologies as education does not happen in isolation, but it is something that is continuously evolving. I think about, for example, the way I taught theory last semester is completely different than the way I teach mm-hmm. it this semester. Doesn't mean students aren't learning, doesn't <laughs> mean that my identities aren't showing mm-hmm. up, mm-hmm. but it, it does mean that we are thinking about it differently. And I think the same thing applies to, to your question, V. We, we have to think about it differently all the time. We all must be, we always must be doing reevaluation. My grandmother, she often says, if you're not willing to grow, then you're not willing to be better. Um, mm-hmm. And I think this question calls for everyone, despite race, gender, sexual orientation, class, mm-hmm. uh, whatever identity, put in an X identity, um, you need that in order to grow. Um, mm-hmm. So no, I'm glad that there are folks that look like me, that share some identities of me that are supportive, but we need everyone at the table to be supportive. Mm-hmm. So we teased earlier that Dr. Beatty and Dr. Ford have a forthcoming book um, by Information Age Publishing in the Contemporary Perspectives and Leadership Learning series. So can you all tell us a little bit about what to expect in the book that's coming out? Yeah, so Jesse and I spent almost two years um, crafting. Uh, it's an edited book, uh, and Jesse and I also contribute uh, quite a few chapters uh, to the book. It's called Engaging Black Men um, and Leadership Learning Through Leadership Learning. Um, in the cover, shout out to our, our wonderful artist in Tallahassee uh, who did our, our cover. But we decided to break the book into kind of three sections. So the first part of the book starts out with like some theoretical considerations, as Jesse named earlier in our conversation of, of thinking about who are the scholars that have been engaged in this conversation. And then how does this book uh, have a conversation with those scholars and the scholarship that, they, that they've produced? And then the second part of the book, which I think both of us are most excited about, is that uh, I know for me, some of the most diverse spaces I've been in have been in spaces that probably would be perceived as monolithic. So spaces with other Black men. So I, I, did, I did a leadership. I teach a Black male leadership class that has quite um, this predominantly Black men. And those are sometimes the most diverse spaces that I've been in. And we don't have a critical conversation around the intersections of identity with Black men. Mm -hmm. So the second section of the book is written um, from the narratives of Black men that either hold these intersection identities or work with with Black men or men-identified individuals. So it's everything from how do we think about leadership and leadership learning from students that have had to navigate the foster care system to students with disabilities, to student athletes, to 
context uh, in terms of institutional type. So HBCUs versus community colleges. So I'm just really excited because some I feel like somebody can pick up this book and find some connection with, with the intersecting identities of the book and then think about their own particular context and how they either work with Black men or are Black mm -hmm. men navigating mm -hmm. leadership, leadership learning. And then, of course, the last section of the book is kind of tie all these together. What are, Where do I go from here if I want to start an initiative? What is that? What does that look like? So that was the overview of the book. Jesse, you, of course, you can talk about the purpose of, of the book and, and all of that. But we are so excited. It should be out early February, end of February, March, hopefully by, <laughs> you know, conference season in terms of NASPA and ACPA. Pre-spring break, hopefully. Yeah, yeah 20, 2023. <laughs> Thank you all so much again for your time and energy today. Um, how can our listeners best connect with both of you? I am usually in the Twitter streets, so you can find me at Cameron Carl, C-A-R-L. Uh, so Cameron Carl on Twitter is probably where I'm most engaged. And I also have a LinkedIn account. My Instagram is private, but, you know, holler at me in the in the Twitter streets uh, if, you're, if you're looking for me. I'm also, if you're looking for a higher education program, doctoral or master's that engages in these critical conversations around leadership and social justice. Florida State University is accepting applications due December 1st. Like my good friend, brother and colleague, um, Cameron, I am also in the Twitter universe as well. At Jesse4J is my Twitter handle. Also very much in the recruiting season for our higher ed master's and doc programs. You're more than welcome to come join us in the great city of Greensboro, third largest city in the state of North Carolina. Um, my email is my first name, that's J-E-S-S-E, period, F-O-R-D, so jesse, period, Ford, at uncg.edu. Other than that, I have a LinkedIn. I'm also very active there. I do enjoy reading posts and information around stocks, bonds, and all the other things that LinkedIn brings into the conversation. Perfect. Well, you can find all that information and more in our show notes for this episode. I want to once again thank our guests for joining us today. Um, and that's all for today. We'll catch you next time. The NASPA SLPKC podcast is a production of the Student Affairs Administrators and Higher Education's Student Leadership Programs Knowledge Community. As the leading voice of student affairs, NASPA drives innovation and evidence-based, student-centered practice throughout higher education, nationally and globally. The mission of the SLPKC is to serve as a resource for higher education professionals who have an interest in leadership training, education, and development. The podcast is produced by Derek Pacheco and hosted by Brittany Devies, Anna Maya, and me, Vichanu. The music featured on our episodes comes from pixabay.com. Find us on Twitter at NASPA Tweets, send email to slpchairs at gmail.com, and find links to our references from this episode in the show notes. Thank you, as always, for listening.